welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today we consider love and luck and their role in the true wealth, happiness, and meaning of life. And a kind of new science, a new version of science, because we've been considering a massive scientific study over the past two contemplations. It's the Harvard study of adult development. And we tried to change the headlines about this study to reflect the revolutionary implications of the data. This would be revolutionary for our culture, but also for our science. We need our science to evolve in the dominant culture. And that's not the craziest thing. Scientists know that we have had revolutions in the past that have fundamentally changed some of the basic vision that we have had about the nature of reality, what kind of cosmos we live in. And we keep finding out new and interesting things all the time, but we may be ready for a true shift. We're still operating in, a, in an important sense. We still functionally live in a Newtonian universe rather than the sort of interwoven cosmos that we already have plenty of scientific findings about. We just can't quite get our minds and hearts around it. Or we could say, as the old line goes, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. And we've emphasized that the revolutionary implications of the Harvard study of adult development accord with the wisdom traditions and that we need those traditions in order to make both the stated findings and the more radical unstated findings of the study a reality. The stated findings were summed up best by George Valent. If you've been listening so far, you, you can say those five words. George Valent was the study's previous director, and ten years ago he said that what at that time had been 75 years of the Harvard study. Now we're on to 85 years. But back then he said the 75 years of work and $20 million spent on it, it all boiled down to a single five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. Full stop. And we pointed out last time that the study, when we look at it and we contemplate carefully what that means, we see that it points to the ecology of love. And that in turn leads us to recognize our own need for a love of ecology, and not in any simple-minded sense. We're talking about hard-nosed science here, but also ancient wisdom. And we pointed out that if happiness really is love, well, that puts us in a difficult spot because the cultural practices of the dominant culture are ill-equipped to maximize our happiness, if happiness is love. I mean, if happiness were money and junk we can buy at the big box store or online, then, well, we would be as rich as anyone ever has been. 
That would be it. We'd all be so fulfilled. But that's not what this study says that makes us happy. And the dominant culture just doesn't teach us how to love. It's not very good at it. It doesn't have the resources. It doesn't resource us to know how to live and love skillfully. And that's why we have philosophy. Plato gave us the word philosophy, which means love wisdom, precisely because he wanted us to understand that the wisdom traditions see love as a trainable skill. We can learn to love. And as we walk the path of love, we simultaneously walk the path of wisdom and beauty. And if happiness is love, then that means we can learn happiness. We can learn true happiness. If we can actively engage with the holistic teachings and practices of love that come from the wisdom traditions, we will arrive at what the Harvard study has verified as most essential for our health and our happiness. In short, we will be able to cultivate and enjoy the true wealth of nations. And no nation can long endure if it doesn't know how to cultivate and enjoy the true wealth of nations. Now, the wisdom traditions have many teachings on love and its relationship to both wisdom and beauty, but Nietzsche came up a few times in the last contemplation, and it's not as if Nietzsche has the finest teachings on love, but he's quite an interesting philosopher in so many ways, and there's something about Nietzsche's expression of certain aspects of this that seem relevant for us. And maybe that's in part because Nietzsche so effectively diagnosed the soul sickness of the dominant culture. And maybe it's nice to talk about him in relation to love, because I think not that many people would bring him to mind as a philosopher of love. If I said, who are your favorite philosophers of love? People might say something about Plato because he wrote the symposium and gave us that nice word, love wisdom. And so the symposium gives us the notion of the soulmate and a lot of interesting suggestions about love. And then we have philosophers like Rumi and Hafiz, and so many wonderful philosophers to choose from. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a wonderful book on love, a few actually, and his longtime right-hand lady, Sister True Emptiness, she wrote a book, her, her sort of spiritual autobiography called Learning True Love. It's worth reading. But we're going to turn to Nietzsche. The passage we will consider also resonates with what we've been talking about, this need for a paradigm shift. He, Nietzsche wrote a book which is called in German Die Fröhliche Wissenschaft, which we might think of as a little elaborated title, might be The Joyful Holistic Science, or maybe The Joyful Wisdom. And Nietzsche associates his intended meaning with Guy Saber, which is the art of the troubadours. And we could call that Gaia Sienza. Gaia as in happy, G-A-Y-A, Sienza, the, the happy science, the joyful science. I said joyful wisdom because science got divorced from wisdom. We could even call it Gaia Sienza with G-A-I-A. -A. I know that's a not 
the funniest pun you ever heard. I can't help it. My mother was a fan of puns. But G-A-Y-A, Cienza, is the happy science, and G-A-I-A is the Gaia, earth science. And it'd be wonderful if we could just have that little mandala. All, all those meanings would be there. Joyful wisdom, joyful science, earth science. And feel it as the paradigm shift that this Harvard study invites us into. And the idea is that it includes diversity, this joy, joyful Gaian science. It includes biodiversity, mind diversity, heart diversity. It includes joy. And it relates to the activity of love. That's where the troubadours come in. Science would become a love poetry written to ourselves, each other, and the world we share. Wouldn't that be a nice way to practice science as love poetry to the world? And as something that furthers the conditions of life. Doesn't just race around trying to collect this thing that we call knowledge. And so all that comes to mind, and it seems to give Nietzsche a nice a nice place to hang out with us, you know, a nice reason to have him in, in the party here. And here are some of Nietzsche's reflections on love from that book, The Joyful Wisdom, The Joyful Science, The Gaia Science. And Nietzsche wrote uh, most of his books, when you're looking for references, you find section numbers because he wrote numbered sections. And this is in section 334 in that book, so you can find it. And this is well, probably Walter Kaufman's translation. And not everything Nietzsche says is is perfect, but he's just interesting. He always gives you interesting things to think of. So I'm going to read this passage. I'll let you know when we get to the end of it. So here is section 334. Nietzsche writes, One must learn to love. This is what happens to us in music. First, one has to learn to hear a figure and melody at all, to detect and distinguish it, to isolate it and delimit it as a separate life. Then it requires some exertion and good will to tolerate it in spite of its strangeness, to be patient with its appearance and expression, and kind-hearted about its oddity. Finally, there comes a moment when we are used to it, when we wait for it, when we sense that we should miss it if it were missing. And now it continues to compel and enchant us relentlessly until we have become its humble and enraptured lovers who desire nothing better from the world than it and only it. But that is what happens to us not only in music. That is how we have learned to love all things that we now love. In the end, we are always rewarded for our goodwill, our patience, fair-mindedness, and gentleness with what is strange. Gradually it sheds its veil and turns out to be a new and indescribable beauty. That is its thanks for our hospitality. Even those who love themselves will have learned it in this way, for there is no other way. Love, too, 
has to be learned. There is so much to love about this passage, and maybe Nietzsche is a bit strange to you. I, I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I've encountered several people in my life who, when I brought up Nietzsche, were quite reactive and dismissive. And then I would say, well, you know, he said such and such. And they said, he, he, he wrote that? And I'd say, yeah, go and take a look. And sometimes they would go and take a look and come back and say, well, I read that and that was great, but then I couldn't get past this other thing. And then I'd say, well, you know, he says this and that. And I said, he really? He wrote that? Yeah, it's in the same book or it's in a different book. Well, let me go there. So he is a bit strange sometimes, I think, and he he gets misinterpreted pretty easily and can be easily dismissed. And I think he's the kind of philosopher, if I followed the sort of caricature of him, I think I might be surprised to see so many mentions of kindness and patience and gentleness. Wow, you know, this is the guy who writes about the Ubermensch and the will to power. And here he's talking about kindness and gentleness and the strangeness that we find not only in the other, but even in ourselves. You can see why Jung and Freud and other psychologists were so influenced by Nietzsche. We have psychodynamic psychology, and not just that, but Adler, Viktor Frankl, they were all influenced by Nietzsche. And he's saying that there are parts of ourselves that are strange and they require our hospitality. And so many people know Rumi's poem about the guest house and way before Rumi, Buddha wrote the same metaphor about our inner states, that they just need a place to, to come and rest and we can welcome them with hospitality and patience. I think a lot of the experience of learning tango because when if you are not familiar with social dance, and even if you are, it depends, if you aren't specifically familiar with Argentine-style tango, when you first see it, you can't see what is happening. Of course, you see two people are dancing, but the, so much of what the dancers do is unfamiliar and strange in the context of ordinary social dance. Some of the things that you see in Dengu, if you look really carefully, in some other dance, they would be the prelude to tripping each other. There are things that happen that just would be so surprising if you tried to introduce them into a foxtrot. If, if that person dancing the foxtrot had never danced tango. And so things happen that you just can't even see and recognize them as a dance move as having a life. And then gradually you begin to see, oh, I see what that is. That was a leg hook. Oh, that was a displacement. And it begins to make sense. And we have to have the goodwill to tolerate it in spite of its strangeness and to be patient. Of course, sometimes it's because we get hooked. You know, so there's something, we're just drawn and we don't know why. It may seem beautiful, enchanting, but still it's strange and we it requires, it demands that patience for us to get to know it because it just takes time. And I, I just think it's a great 
passage that Nietzsche has written here for all these reasons. There's a, a humbling, a humility that Sophia demands and that our love of anything demands. And we have to resist our temptation to think we know. That there is a not knowing required and a patience to abide in that not knowing. So this is a wonderful passage for so many reasons. And we can, I think, safely say the Harvard study just doesn't teach us how to learn to love, how to learn skillful relationality, and how to cultivate minds of ecology and vitalizing ecologies of mind so that we live and love in service to life, in service to the great mystery itself. The wisdom traditions teach that far better than the contemporary science of the dominant culture. And when we're talking about the wisdom traditions, that includes indigenous traditions, because indigenous science is much more of a Gaia Scienza or a Gaia Scienza, G-A-Y-A or G-A-I-A. It's much more of a joyful science than, or a joyful wisdom than what we call science in the dominant culture, which again, unfortunately, abandon wisdom. It could be a, a practice of natural wisdom. And Nietzsche tried to cultivate a non-dualistic relational love wisdom. That's part of the reason why he belongs in a discussion of love, because as we saw, love is relational. That's the great unstated finding of the Harvard study, that the whole cosmos, that we and everything else, are relationality all the way down. Everything is total interwovenness, a holistic, dynamic flow of interwovenness. Love is not an object that we can hand over to someone. And that's why some wisdom traditions teach, for instance, that in giving a gift, there is no giver, no receiver, and no gift given. Because if things are relational all the way down, relationality all the way down means you couldn't find a gift. You just find more relationality. In very practical terms, when we try to offer love and support to someone, they actually have to have the capacity to receive it. And many of us have encountered people who at first demonstrate a lack of skill in doing just that. And we've seen this in, in the scientific literature even, that if we offer compassion to someone or love to someone, if they don't know how to receive it, then it just doesn't get received. What we offer thus depends on the one to whom we offer it, as well as depending on us and our entire practice of life. If we have practiced love and compassion, then what we offer is far more skillful. Even if we might have the greatest intention, we really want to offer love, but if we don't have the skill then we can't fulfill that intention. Love depends on my practice in offering it and your practice in receiving it. Love only exists as a moment, as a function of a dynamic ecology of mind, a flower that bursts into bloom and then fades. 
We have the capacity to conjure this blooming again and again and again and again, endlessly. And in some cases, if we're practicing well, it becomes more subtle, more profound, more beautiful, more luminous, deepening, expanding into the whole cosmos. Every time we practice it, it gets a little more brilliant and pervasive and magical. Each moment of love is the universe. As part of his diagnosis of the dominant culture's soul sickness, Nietzsche recognized how thoroughly unequipped the dominant culture makes us to receive the findings of a study like this. Remember, he was a philosopher of relationality, and this is a study that verifies the relational nature of the cosmos, which Nietzsche intuited as a philosopher. He could see it. It's not like you need a microscope to find that relationality. We can find it without any modern scientific equipment. And the Harvard study didn't use anything, didn't need anything that fancy. We've gotten ourselves so stuck in the dualities of individual versus collective, self versus world, culture versus nature. And in general, we've embodied so much ignorance that we can't really understand, let alone understand, how our interwovenness could constitute our individuality in a way that doesn't scare us having have a scurrying to some nihilistic conclusion. Relational philosophies present challenges, paradoxes, and demanding practices, especially if we don't have a culture that embraces relational philosophy. Nietzsche himself never managed to develop a fully non-dualistic relational philosophy, but he did notice some of the deep challenges and paradoxes. For instance, he realized that the interwovenness of the cosmos overthrows our naive notions of the sovereign individual. Now, we're getting into dangerous wisdom territory with that. No one could accuse Nietzsche of failing to revere the sanctity of the individual in relative terms. He clearly values the individual. And that's what can make it so hard to understand how he nevertheless criticizes the notion of the sovereign individual, ultimately criticizing it in a way that would force us to rethink much of our personal and cultural lives if we could receive his critique with an open heart, open mind. And again, it resonates with the findings of the Harvard study. We're not sitting around here speculating. This is no mere armchair philosophizing or metaphysical speculation. Ultimately, Nietzsche realized that our acceptance of reality, our acceptance of love, relationality, luck, dynamism, and the great mystery that will forever outstrip our ego, our acceptance of and turning toward all of this would necessarily provoke us because of our cultural context. In other words, we wouldn't just 
accept it and turn toward it and embrace it, but rather we would instead revert to nihilism. In a way, you could say we we don't turn toward it at all. We avoid it. We repress it and suppress reality. And we all know the spirit of this because we can see it, maybe in ourselves, but certainly in others, informed of the incredible role of luck in our lives, including the good fortune of loving parents, we can sense how tempting it feels to shrug our shoulders and give up, or to take the presence of luck as an insult. And like the great sages of the wisdom traditions, Nietzsche, who wasn't a sage but was in many ways a very good philosopher, he understood that such a reaction lacks insight. So now bear, bear with this, because this is a difficult thing to get our minds and hearts around. We live in a culture, we live in a style of consciousness that bombards us with personal responsibility in such a way that it can seem completely unrealistic if we make any suggestion that our success or failure is due to forces that transcend the ego. Culture wants us to make the fundamental attribution error and locate the cause of things strictly inside ourselves. The culture we now perpetuate just does not know how to handle reality, the reality of our interwovenness and our relational nature. Nietzsche warned us that we have no idea how to embody truth because evolution doesn't have any requirement in it that we embody truth. We only have to survive. And so we could embody ignorance, and we do embody ignorance. All the sages agree. Nietzsche's not some lone crazy who points out that we don't know how to embody truth, many sages would agree with him. If we all cooperate in creating and perpetuating a culture deeply rooted in the practice of blaming people for their every failure, while praising especially the wealthy and powerful for their every single success, and we will have a major challenge when it comes to recognizing how interwovenness actually functions in our lives. The regime we have depends on a cycle of praise and blame. It's integral to the insanity. We have to have it. We have to blame anyone and everyone who lacks wealth, power, fame, and conventional success. And all those who have wealth, power, fame, conventional success, they need to be able to take full credit for it, for the system to make sense, or else our heads start to explode. And again, we get very reactive and very insulted. And so as a consequence, the society firmly believes in the image of the sovereign individual that Nietzsche himself critiqued. Any challenge to that, any suggestion that the stubborn pattern of praise and blame lacks reality, well, that leads people to react as if the conclusion must be nihilism, you see. 
we either have praise and blame or nothing matters, and we, anyone successful has been insulted, and anyone who has failed has been now something like babied or indulged, I'm not sure what it is. But but this sort of thinking, it, it lacks wisdom, that's all there is to it, and we have to find some way to get beyond our reactivity and fears on this issue. Interwovenness demands that we do so because the interwovenness is real, not our ideas about reality. And we could go rather deeply into the issue of nihilism and related considerations. But we're just going to try to look at some aspects of it. Just touch on a few things. And maybe we could do that in part by circling back to Waldinger and Schultz and talking about how they end their book and, and then bringing that back into the place of love and luck in our lives. At the end of their book, Waldinger and Schultz note that the good life is not a life of leisure or comfort. Here's what they write, quote, Thousands of stories from the Harvard study show us that the good life is not found by providing ourselves with leisure and ease. Rather, it arises from the act of facing inevitable challenges and from fully inhabiting the moments of our lives. It appears quietly as we learn how to love and how to open ourselves to being loved as we grow from our experiences and as we stand in solidarity with others through the inevitable string of joys and adversities in every human life. That's the end of the quote. And we're back to this idea of how we quietly learn to love. They're almost resonating a little bit with Nietzsche, the patience, the hospitality we have to offer to life and to our own experiences, to our own ecology of mind, the parts of our mind that are strange to us that we have to learn how to appreciate and see as having their own separate life in the music of the world, in the symphony of the world. And then we have this inevitable string of joys and adversities and this sense of solidarity that we are interwoven. And that's getting... That's in line with this vibe that we're touching on. How do we make sense of this Harvard study that shows us that an individual isn't really responsible for their success, but an ecology is? The ecology of childhood strongly correlates with how happy, how healthy, and how materially stable we're going to be, how materially well-off. And What's fascinating about this passage that we just read and other elements of the findings that Valent and Waldinger and Schultz have laid out for us is that none of these good things come from capitalism. It's really remarkable. Capitalism does nothing for us here, and that's unsurprising. If happiness is love, full stop, that's got nothing to do with how we have fundamentally organized our culture, because capitalism is so integral to it. 
we spend so much time and effort engaged in the money game, and it has nothing to do with our health, happiness, or meaning in the deepest sense. And that's a major problem. Once we realize that happiness is love, we've got to start to ask ourselves, well, then how do we set up the society? And it seems reasonable to say maybe we should think about how to set up the culture on the basis of wisdom because what these authors have written here in this paragraph that we just read and in other parts of the book, other aspects of the findings, all of that is completely in accord. The good, the best parts of it are fully in accord with the spirit of the wisdom traditions around the world. They've always trained us to face the challenges of life as gateways to wisdom, love, and beauty. They've always taught us how to live well together in attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. And capitalism has nothing to do with any of that. It is completely disconnected from the essence of the good life. Now, capitalism does have to do with offering us supposed comforts and leisure. It offers us junk comforts, we could say. Junk food, junk goods, junk ease. Not real peace, but junk ease. A lazy boy and a big screen TV. And then it steals a lot of our leisure time, oddly enough. You know, we're, we're all afraid, as I often say, we're afraid that the robots are going to take our job instead of saying, well, what's taking so long? Let the robots take our job. We need more leisure time. But Capitalism presents itself as offering us comforts that it wants us to see as valuable, even though they might be junk. And Adam Smith himself recognized that we need more than comfort and leisure. And that, in a basic sense, we need no more comfort and leisure than we would adequately establish for ourselves working with the most basic technologies. Adam Smith would have thought that we could have sufficient comfort and ease in his time, let alone ours. And so he understood, at least intellectually, that what capitalism can give us, we have no real need for. We have other ways to solve the problems that we think capitalism solves for us, and we can solve them much more effectively, more wisely, creatively, compassionately. And the Harvard study here is telling us that at best capitalism is only going to confuse us because we needn't worry about comfort so much, and it's stealing our leisure. We have to demand our lives back from the capitalist regime. Now, leisure is a potentially complex topic. But if we could at least think of leisure as unstructured time for which we have the energy to do whatever most genuinely inspires us, then capitalism doesn't do very well in delivering that. We tend to have to force the capitalists to provide us five to six weeks of paid vacation to say nothing of a three or four day work week in which we work a maximum of four to eight hours per day for full-time wages. That wouldn't be so bad, especially if we eliminated all the ridiculous jobs that shouldn't exist. Now, in some parts of the dominant culture, you could get five or six weeks of paid vacation. In the United States, that's not common. It's certainly many, many jobs. There is no such thing as paid vacation. Many, many jobs. 
And the jobs that do have paid vacation, five to six weeks would be exceptional. And a three or four day work week, working a maximum of four to eight hours a day, that sounds like some sort of dream, even though it would be perfectly reasonable if we organized our culture on the basis of wisdom rather on the basis of money. And Adam Smith could draw from the wisdom traditions more easily than some of us today to realize the problems with capitalism. But we need to turn to them. We've come to a point at which we need to recognize that although capitalism promises comfort and leisure, it doesn't do a great job at giving us comforts that matter, and it now robs a great many of us of leisure time that it should be able to give us, but it, it just refuses for some reason. There's some loosening in certain places. We're starting to see talk of a four-day work week. We'll see how that goes. And worse yet, as the wisdom traditions teach and as the Harvard study reinforces, comfort and leisure, as we've just said, it's they aren't what life is about. And even this rather important bit about comfort stands out as yet another case of science in general verifying things the wisdom traditions have told us for a very long time. And this has become increasingly tragic because we keep failing to learn the lessons. And we're talking about all this just to make it clear why it resonates, because we have this culture of praise and blame, and we have this idea of productivity. It's all connected. It's not a culture of love. It's a culture of praise and blame. And it's not a culture oriented toward happiness. It's oriented toward productivity for the benefit of the capitalist, not for the benefit of the conditions of life. And so all this hangs together. Just try to hold the image in mind. And it starts to set in. And when we think about all this in relation to the wisdom traditions, one of the problems we face, it, it seems to me still the case that we treat the ancients as if they were idiots and as if we know more than they did. And I used to see this all the time in the university. I still see it today among both academics and scientists outside of philosophy, as well as among many citizens in the dominant culture. Now, it's all well and good to have our own opinion about a philosophical question, but philosophy is not about opinions. And I think we fail to understand that. Students studying philosophy, and I'm sure many typical citizens, behave as if their opinions have every bit as much or maybe even more sense to them than the considered reflections of people like Plato and Aristotle. Many people today seem to behave as if they think themselves more intelligent than the ancient sages. And it's almost as if we have to have some incredible suspicion about the wisdom traditions because we think that science must be superior. And yet it isn't. Science isn't superior in any broad sense that matters to our true peace and happiness. As far as the true wealth of nations which includes the health of the conditions of life. And science has not been doing a good job here because we just look at the state of the world. Science has progressed as the world has degraded, as species have gone extinct, and so on and so on. 
The wisdom traditions have the same basic epistemic commitment that scientists claim to have, and that just means their commitment to knowledge, to real knowledge and not opinion, not speculation. The philosophers and sages, the saints and priestesses and others that we would have listened to if we lived in their cultures would have insisted, the good ones would all have insisted, that we not accept their teachings as a matter of mere dogma or belief, but that we verify those teachings and make them real in our lives. And we see that the wisdom traditions have long understood things our science continues to spend huge sums on verifying, without thereby helping us make the cultural changes we need to make. And we already pointed that out with the Harvard study. To say that relationships are important, and then we're going to write a book and go on a press junket, it seems incredible. So we're going around telling people relationships are important. How is that a finding? 85 years of research. And it's not to say there's no interesting findings. It's to say, can we be realistic? Can we have some, a little bit of fierce compassion with ourselves about this? I mean, if we, the basic insights of the Harvard study, we could find in just about any venerable wisdom tradition in the world. Take your pick. The various forms of Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Platonism, indigenous traditions. And none of these are monolithic traditions. So we can't think of just the Christianity. But none of the versions of these, I think, lack the basic insights we find in the Harvard study. We don't even have to turn to the great sages of these and other venerable traditions. Even some of the more intellectual philosophers will do. For instance, Aristotle, much more of a, an intellectual than a sage like Plato or Socrates, but his teachings on ethics express his understanding of the importance of our childhood environment on our moral character and our success in life. He holds out some degree of optimism, but he recognizes that certain kinds of life circumstances will make it nearly impossible for some of us to become truly good and successful people in the broadest sense, the most holistic sense. And when we look at the Harvard study, we see that a warm childhood correlates with an income that might be double that of another Harvard graduate of similar capacity and potential who experienced a relatively cold childhood. And, as we've noted, Valent has a word for the worst off of that latter group. So if you had a cold childhood and you had one of the coldest, if you were in the sort of bottom 10%, the chilliest 10%, well, Valent referred to those poor children as loveless. And he has a word for the other side of the spectrum, the top 10%, those with the warmest, most supportive childhoods. He called those the cherished. And the ancient Greeks also had a word for that group. They called them lucky. But we're not allowed to talk about that because we suffer from the delusion of meritocracy, the myth of the sovereign individual, the delusion that everyone gets what they deserve in a system designed not on the basis of justice, but on the basis of ignorance. Now, how do you figure? You've got a system that is not designed on the basis of justice, on the basis of wisdom, and somehow, magically, everybody gets what they deserve. 
And this is just part of the myth of the sovereign individual, that we've got to be able to blame people. And we've got to be able to praise and take credit for anything that works for us. Now maybe something in us feels a little cheap thinking about the income figures that we've talked about. I mentioned them because they're in the book, and I think it's really important to recognize that this is the kind of culture where we're going to say, hey, this guy went to Harvard and made $243,000 a year, this other fellow only made $109,000 a year, and the difference is that the guy making more money just had a warmer childhood, and that's extraordinary. That we could make a quarter million dollars a year in some sense, primarily because we had a warm childhood, should make our heads explode. And yet we don't want to call that luck. Because we want to say that the person who achieved whatever they achieved deserved it. And that's part of our myth of meritocracy, the myth of the sovereign individual, the myth that functions to support the perpetuation of a system that does not care about our merits as human beings. And so we want to minimize the good fortune of having a parent who was kind to us, loving, patient, all those nice things that Nietzsche described, and a parent moreover, who themselves might have attended an Ivy League school. I mean, some of us had parents who didn't have college degrees, wouldn't have known, my parents wouldn't have known how to help me navigate the college admissions process. They didn't, they were completely hands-off, didn't know anything about it. And so if you had a parent who had a college degree, that's an advantage. If they had an Ivy League college degree, that's quite an advantage. That's quite lucky. And then to have the opportunity ourselves to go into that ecology and make lifelong connections at a school like Harvard. Now, legacy admissions were likely fairly significant when the Harvard study began way back in 1938. You can bet a good number of the people who were in those classes had parents who also were. Not everybody, surely. And we know that an Ivy League education provides significant advantages that have nothing to do with some peculiar level of hard work on the part of the students who attend those schools. Just going to Harvard means a roughly 58% increase in annual earnings a decade after graduation, which we can hardly attribute to intelligence and hard work alone because lots of very bright, hardworking people go to state schools and private schools that are just nowhere near as highly regarded as Harvard. And we can say that wealth can become a very significant factor in relation to the Ivy League ecology. And I came across something rather interesting in this regard. There's a wealth consultancy firm. Isn't that an interesting notion? We're talking about the true wealth of nations. This is not a firm interested in the conditions of life and love. They're just, you know, a money firm. But it's a wealth consultancy firm called Henley and & Partners, and they produced a wealth report for 2023. And one of the authors contributed to a section of the report called Educating Tomorrow's Centimillionaires. 
In other words, people who will have a net worth of at least $100 million. And the author of that section of the report wrote that, quote, access to top-tier education is a premise of the world's wealthiest who maximize their children's prospects to build greater intergenerational success and affluence, end quote. A premise, you say. And not just a premise, but a premise of intergenerational wealth. That is a really significant notion. That we're still building dynasties, even though the true wealth of nations is love and relationality. Now, what does one derive from such a premise? The premise of sending a child to this specialized ecology to build intergenerational wealth. Well, the study found that, quote, 35% of the centimillionaires in the USA today are graduates of just eight schools, namely Harvard, MIT, Stanford, the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, Yale, Cornell, and Princeton. Now, given the acceptance rate of these colleges, which is very small, we know that millions of exceptionally talented, hard-working people just don't get into them. And acceptance into them is not measured on effort alone. Luck plays a crucial and, in some cases, a decisive role. Moreover, as we noted, those who gain entrance to Ivy League schools develop relationships they can draw from for the rest of their life. We are relational beings, and the Ivy League is an ecology of mind. We can recall here that Facebook started out as a goofy game for Harvard students. It was just a really stupid game for bored Ivy League students. I, I think there's a, a, a maybe, a, it's not really a documentary, maybe it's a drama, dramatized movie about the origin of Facebook. Maybe it talks about some of these things, but if you look it up, you see that Zuckerberg was doing really silly things. And then the game that he designed, it took a step into digitizing something Harvard already had and valued, and that is their student and alumni network, the Ivy League Ecology of Mind. It was in a physical book form, and it was digitized. And so this wasn't visionary genius. It was not visionary genius that created Facebook. Rather, Facebook emerged as a relational game for rather fortunate people who knew very well the value of social connections. In the context of the dominant culture, we can refer to it as an aspect of the ecology of money. And it has more to do with our success than hard work alone. It has a heck of a lot to do with luck. And here we, we have to be very plain. Say it. This does not mean that no wealthy people ever worked hard. This does not mean that no successful person worked hard. It means that if any of us became wealthy or conventionally successful, 
and then we met a comparable human being with a fraction of our material success. And maybe we realize that this is a person a whole lot like us. But they largely failed in their attempts at conventional success, while we, we achieved conventional success. Now, what will we think in that situation? Well, we might naturally attribute our success to some slight edge that we locate in ourselves. Well, I'm just a little bit more creative than he is, you see. I'm a little smarter. You know, he's pretty smart, but I've always been just a little bit smarter than he is. Or you know he's just not bold. He doesn't have that grit. He gives up too easily. We would have the explanation, and the Harvard study shows us that it would be a rationalization, that a lot of it might come down to the fact that I had a better relationship with my mother than he did, or my parents stayed together and his didn't, and he took it pretty hard. And maybe we want to blame that on him, but he was a kid, he was a, a, a child when it happened, and he had no control over it. Our critical thinking can help us to see this because we can sense the relationality in the world. We can find, if we're honest, the ways in which we were lucky. And the Harvard study indicates this. The Harvard study indicates that we'd be fooling ourselves if we just wanted to assume that because we put out energy and we felt ourselves working hard, that that was the explanation for why we've succeeded. We can't get our heads around the possibility that somebody else worked just as hard, maybe even harder, and didn't succeed. And again, we want to judge it. We want to be able to blame them. And we want to be able to praise ourselves and to take credit for the success. And so we're in this paradoxical situation, this place where there's a tension of opposites, where we have to see how we could acknowledge that, yes, we did work hard, but that, no, that does not explain it completely. It doesn't explain why we succeeded. It's not enough. That causal relations in a completely interwoven cosmos are not that simple. And we, we fool ourselves. We tell these delusional stories at a cultural scale when we think of people like Zuckerberg, Gates, or Musk as visionary geniuses with capacities both rare and of the kind we actually need. Because both of those things are not really true. Maybe even more so the, the latter, <laughs> but even the former. There are people every bit as bright as Zuckerberg, Gates, and Musk who just aren't rich and famous. We don't know about them. Much of our politics, economics, and the self-help industrial complex as a whole would find it very uncomfortable to acknowledge that we should attribute a significant degree of our success to a massive dose of good luck, including the incredible good luck of having a warm childhood. And that we must likewise attribute a good bit of our failure to a significant dose of bad luck, 
including, for instance, the bad luck of having a crappy or even just relatively unstable and cold childhood. And these facts serve to keep studies like the Harvard study limited in a variety of ways, including what the scientists themselves will discover, conclude, or recommend, as well as what we as individuals and as a culture will accept, acknowledge, and incorporate, integrate. One way we could interpret the Harvard study results would be to say that we have an obligation to make the world feel luckier and to empower people to create more luck where they have encountered some bad luck. And we could add love in there too. We could make the world more filled with love, make the world feel more alive and alive and meaningful and warm. If we understood our relational nature well enough, if we understood the interwovenness of the world well enough, we could begin to maximize the auspiciousness of our interbeing by means of holistic philosophies of life. A healthy culture can gift all of its children a truly fortunate life, rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. We can all receive and we can all give the gift of auspicious interbeing. We can cultivate it. We can make a world of auspicious interbeing, just like a healthy forest is, where all the trees are in it together. And we tend to minimize luck as an explanatory factor, in part because our minds have gotten co-opted into the immune system of capitalism. Capitalism is, is controlling our minds more than we realize. Again, when we make the fundamental attribution error, we think we're walking around with ideas in our heads rather than recognizing that we are walking around in ideas. We are walking around as part of large-scale loops of mind that we don't sense because we are part of a loop. We don't see the whole loop. We just see our little fragment of it. So you can imagine just a big loop of mind and you only get to see a little piece and you're just looking at a straight line and you don't see that there's this big web that you're seeing a small part of. We can't hold the whole loop in our conscious mind, what we refer to as consciousness. And so we don't see how we've been captured how we become pawns in a pattern of insanity, machinery in a massive engine of ignorance. We fancy ourselves as thinking independently, independent critical thinkers. But the Harvard study shows us the truth. Our thinking, our imagination, our success, and our experience have an ecological nature. We are relational beings and no one realizes success on their own. Again, these are ecologies that we're looking at. We, we give them a name. Oh, this is Fred. He's in the Harvard study. Well, Fred's an ecology and he came from an ecology. 
Philosophy means attunement to this essential relationality, attunement to interwovenness, liberating its fullest positive potentials. The nurturing some people receive in childhood arises as a lived philosophy of life. Philosophy is first and foremost how we do things. If we love our children and we practice love as far as possible for us, and if we support our children and we practice support and mutuality as far as possible for us, then we have a fairly decent philosophy of life and we convey that to our children body to body. It's intimate. Sure, we can teach them ideas. We can give them the crystallizations of wisdom that fit in a kind of slogan form. The point is we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be genuinely caring. If you have children or you know anybody who has, this is a crucial bottom line message. Just love that child, those children. Just do your best to be warm and caring. Now, if you can... Get thee to the wisdom traditions. Learn how to love even more skillfully. That's wonderful. Our capacities for love are far more vast than we realize. And the wisdom traditions can get them flowing. But all we need to do is sense that love. Give that warmth and support and begin to try to teach skillful interwovenness as far as it's possible. And our child will already have a big, big, big dose of luck. And then maybe our children might go to a nice university, maybe like Harvard, and maybe they'll get some exposure to the teachings of philosophy. Now, these children in the Harvard study, they probably had to take some philosophy courses now, in the university system, it's going to be pretty limited exposure. But they still probably got to read Plato and the Stoics and other good philosophers, and that can help. It's one of the great dangers of wisdom is that even little fragments can empower us. So we want as much holism as we can. And we know that Socrates would have questioned the loveless and the cherished alike in this Harvard study. If he had a chance, because some of them became famous, he would have been happy to question them. And I think that although the cherished among those might have at least come across as less burdened in some ways, we should have no illusions that Socrates would be satisfied with their level of wisdom. I think he would have found them all lacking in true wisdom, probably for the most part. Maybe there's a few exceptions in that Harvard study. There might be some truly wise people. But generally speaking, no, they're not sages. And that's part of what we want to think about. I think we know these things. Our culture has some collective awareness of it, and that's why when people get unhappy in ways that begin to make their lives seem more obviously dysfunctional, what do they do? Well, they go to therapists, and why? Well, because the therapists will apply therapies that are derived ultimately from the wisdom traditions. 
And so there's something in the collective psyche that already recognizes that the teachings of these traditions have happiness, well-being, and the good life as their aim. And we know the teachings work. And so we should keep in mind that this is an important caveat for the study, that the men in this study, and then it got expanded to include women as well, and maybe other varieties, but that the people in the study, the participants, would in general be caught up in the same kinds of errors that the dominant culture has all of us make, and that is the dominant culture tries to keep us away from love-wisdom. And so we don't really study and practice the ancient wisdom tradition so that we can fully inherit the spiritual riches they offer us. But I'm just suggesting that probably at least some of the people in the Harvard study got some exposure, and maybe it helped. And maybe their parents had some of that exposure, and maybe that helped them have a warm childhood to begin with. And so then they could have had a relatively healthy mind within the context of the dominant culture, because the dominant culture doesn't really have a vision of a healthy mind for us to live up to. The experience of health in the dominant culture is highly constrained. And what the wisdom traditions would teach us is the true sanity and true vitality of heart, mind, body, soul, and world that really remains off the table for most of us in the dominant culture. We could say just in general, the world's falling apart. We're not, we're not headed in that direction. But the Harvard study shows us that within the context of this culture, if we can at least achieve some modicum of mental well-being, then we can be successful in the culture and arrive at a sense of happiness and meaning. Real excellence and true success, on the other hand, have always been the promise of the wisdom traditions. And excellence there meant something holistic. Not merely excellence as a lawyer or a CEO, but becoming a truly excellent being. With skills in relative domains emerging from that holistic excellence. In other words, if you are an excellent being, then your excellence as a physician comes from that first and foremost. Rather than, I'm an excellent physician and then maybe I can become a good human being, but largely I'm not. You know, that's that happens all the time. And success meant something holistic for the wisdom traditions as well. So a successful life, spiritually considered, even cosmically considered, was their focus. And we could think of this, or we could call this, the Sophianic reversion. Because conventionally we think like this, when I become successful, then I will be happy. And the Harvard study showed that. There were people like some of the men, even in their 40s, they kind of, there was some anxiety. They didn't really know if their life was going to work out. And then they could relax a little bit as things fell into place because they were stuck in this materialistic culture. So they had to grapple with that. And the Sophianic reversion says this, when we become happy, then we realize true success. It's a flip. Our habit is to say, when I'm successful, when I get this, when I get that, I'll be happy. And we've all heard this a million times. And the Sophianic reversion says, well, no, when you become happy, then the, the real success will unfold. 
And we see this to some degree because even a relatively happy childhood makes us demonstrably more successful in a material sense in the dominant culture. And on that basis, that kind of limited example, we can maybe imagine what the sages really wanted to teach us. The Sophianic aspect marks out a difference between a blessed childhood in the context of the dominant culture and a blessed childhood according to the view of the wisdom traditions. Ideally, we emerge in a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. That would make wisdom, love, and beauty a real presence in our childhood. That's where the love would come from, really. Of course, parents love their children, but the wiser we are and the more we have learned, the more capacity that love has in it. That's just natural. Because if we don't know how to love, we can have all the intention in the world, all the wish to be able to love. We could feel a tremendous energy in our heart. But if we don't have the wisdom to know how to skillfully bring it to life, it's just not going to have the same life. We cannot succeed on the basis of ignorance, hatred, and ugliness. The truest happiness has wisdom, love, and beauty as its cause. And the most blessed childhood is a childhood rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. And discussions of the Harvard study seem to fail to clarify any of the most crucial and most radical issues we've considered in these three contemplations. But we deserve to know about our fuller potentials. We need to hear about this. We need to start more conversation and really think it through together. The whole world depends on our unlocking our supreme inheritance, our the real wealth of the world, the true abundance of the world, an inheritance both spiritual and ecological. We need to know that real happiness is possible, but that it is most authentically and most vibrantly possible only on the basis of wisdom, love, and beauty, and not on the basis of anything the capitalist marketplace can offer us, and not on the basis of anything that accords with the mainstreams of the pattern of insanity that constitutes the dominant culture. We really don't understand how much health and vitality and creativity get excluded by the system that we keep perpetuating. We don't really understand that. We don't fully understand how much wisdom, love, beauty, peace, and justice we lack simply because a pattern of insanity keeps us cut off from our own supreme spiritual and ecological inheritance. It keeps us cut off from the true wealth of nations, the true abundance of life. In spite of what it takes from us, this is the weird thing, in spite of all the pattern of insanity takes from us, we consistently try to rescue the pattern of insanity. 
from reality. We try to rescue capitalism from reality because capitalism does not accord with reality. Nevertheless, capitalism's immune system takes over our bodies and minds and we begin to rationalize over the objections of our own soul. We might even think, well, can't we have a relational capitalism? But that's the wrong question. Everything already is relational. A better question is, well, given that everything is relational, given that it's all interwovenness, what is the most skillful, realistic, and creative way to organize our culture so that it best attunes with reality? What wise, loving, and beautiful ways can we live in harmony with spiritual and ecological realities so that we cultivate the whole of life onward, vibrantly, gifting ourselves and future generations as much good luck and good love, as much auspicious interbeing as possible. That's what we want to ask. Capitalism has to do with turning relationality into abstraction and cutting us off from the intimacy this relationality demands from us. Capitalism invites distance by means of abstraction and extraction. Relationality, on the other hand, invites entrance into intimacy and wonder. By the time we would arrive at a capitalist marketplace that knew what to properly value and how to properly value it, we would have at that moment left the bounds of capitalism altogether, escaping its fetters and chains. Because capitalism can't perform the functions we most need, it is precisely antithetical to relational intimacy antithetical to the interwovenness that grounds our happiness, success, and meaning. When we understand what capitalism tries to do and we understand what reality is, we see that capitalism is antithetical to reality. We see that capitalism doesn't properly fit with reality, doesn't accord with it. It's like a wobbly wheel that will never give us anything but a bumpy, noisy ride. That's why the capitalist marketplace gets things so wrong. It's just constantly out of whack with reality. What value should we put on caring relationships between a mother and their child? Now we understand intellectually, somehow we understand that that's priceless. We sense in our own hearts, in our own bodies, the tension between real values and the valuing processes of the capitalist system. The good life is beyond pricing, but capitalism tries to put a price on everything. And one of the most tragic things about our situation is that we all know what's important. We can all find it, even if we have to reflect for a little bit. Most of us hold values that simply do not accord 
with the capitalist system, and almost all of us on reflection can understand why the processes of capitalism cannot make us happy or give us a fully satisfying sense of the meaning of life. It's not as if somebody really revealed a deep surprise in these books about the Harvard study. It's no shock that the findings of the Harvard study reveal so many of the misguided notions and practices of the capitalist regime. We may find it somewhat surprising in the sense of believing in a certain level of magic or sacredness in the world, for instance, and then finding actual evidence that we were right. That could be surprising. For instance, we might think in our minds or in our hearts, we might say, well, I really believe that telepathy is possible. But then if we experience it or see real evidence, well, that can still be really surprising. And similarly, we may believe in the power of wisdom, love, and beauty, and yet it can seem rather magical to come across the empirical findings of the Harvard study and see that they affirm what the wisdom traditions around the world have told us for thousands of years, teachings most of us already profess to agree with. Why, then, do these books keep coming out? We've had three contemplations on this Harvard study, in part because the whole thing happened because I was seeing all these headlines. Here's the Harvard study. And I thought, wow, they put out another book. George Valent published one ten years ago. And I looked at the new one. Well, it's not that different in terms of the findings. Why did Waldinger and Schultz think they had to write their own book? Now, I don't think it's because they were trying to get money or fame. I think it's because the core lessons from the Harvard study just seem difficult for us to truly receive. And Waldinger and Schultz probably sensed that, as a culture, we haven't really received them yet. And that's deeply unfortunate, ironic, sad, because those core findings already exist as the basic teachings in all the wisdom traditions. The genuine surprises of the study might come to the, the simple fact that we haven't learned. We haven't learned these most basic and obvious lessons. And we still also won't focus on the more subtle and profound lessons of the study. That is, that we are fully relational beings arising in a cosmos that is relationality all the way down. And there's a real danger here, there. You know, we're in the same place that Socrates saw his culture in. He was trying to get people to just care for their own true well-being, trying to get people to love. And we seem still unwilling to found our culture on the insight that happiness is love, which means happiness is also wisdom and beauty. And instead, we've got a culture fundamentally oriented around things that have nothing to do with this. And ironically, we become so starved for these insights that in our hunger, we tragically double down on ignorance and we pour even more of our life energy into the money machine. 
and come up with rationalizations for doing it. And so I, I'm really glad that Waldinger and Schultz wrote their book, that they recognize that we still haven't received these lessons, and at the same time, I'm not sure that these books on the Harvard study do a very good job, or we could say most of the books that would fit into the self-help industrial complex. And most of them just don't do a very good job helping people grapple with the most important aspects of our situation, they don't make an argument for how a study like this adds to the mountain of evidence we have for our need to attempt a renaissance in the dominant culture, including a paradigm shift in science and our philosophy of life, including a paradigm shift in how we understand love and luck and the true wealth of nations. And I don't really expect the authors of this study to embark on a mission to create a culture more in accord with the findings of science and the wisdom traditions. That's what you and I can do. That's the role of dangerous wisdom. If you have questions, suggestions, or stories to share about love, luck, and the true wealth of nations, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring in some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.